You're listening to an audio resource from Vineyard Church of the Rockies in Fort Collins, Colorado. We are joining God's mission, transforming all things, and you're invited. To learn more about us and how you can connect, please visit votr.church. Well, good morning, everyone. It's so great to worship together and start our week that way. We are so thankful uh, that you're here, that you're lifting your voice alongside of so many others that we get to worship together. As always, I just want to take a quick moment to welcome everyone on the live stream. We are so thankful that many households around our city and, and even our region are tuning in with us this morning. And I hope you know that we pray for you often. We love you and, and we, uh, we hope that this morning's time together is a blessing to your family as well. If we've never met before, my name is Jeff. I'm the lead pastor here at the Vineyard. And today we're going to start off with a little bit of a celebration because we just had an amazing outreach as a church family this last week, and we've got to just get in the practice of celebrating and being grateful together. Last week, we had uh, an outreach and a sports camp called the Cross Training Sports Camp. And if you don't know, this was an awesome and phenomenal event. Mike Benavidez, who attends our church, runs this camp. It's a four-day sports camp designed to unite churches together. He did a great job of grabbing four, five, six other churches and a display of unity to the city. We disciple kids in the Word of God in the context of sports and, of course, introduce many to the love of Christ for the first time. This year, we had eight sports that you could choose from to sign up for. We had 291 campers register for the event. 40 people, it gets, it gets even, I mean, that is good, but it gets better. 40 people who've drifted from the Lord, recommitted their life to Christ, and 20 campers made a first-time decision to follow Jesus with their life. It's a phenomenal event that happens now in the last couple of Junes, and we look forward to repeating it in the future. One of the sweet things for us is that we are honored to host the closing ceremonies, at the end of the camp, everyone packs into this room and around our church. They eat Chick-fil-A, they spend time with friends, and they have a presentation about everything that they just went through. And I'm just so thankful for Mike and, and his entire leadership team that he's gathered, the coaches, the volunteers, the huddle leaders that are filled with high school and college students now giving back to those who are younger than them. And it was just an incredible outreach and uh, an event. And so I just want to say thank you. Thank you to God for all that he did in the last week. And thank you to many of you, because I know I saw familiar faces there when I was dropping my children off in the morning, and you cared and loved um, and demonstrated the, demonstrated the kingdom in a powerful, powerful way this last week. So that's special. We're going to transition now into the message uh, for today. And I want to remind you that all summer long, we've been in, we're going to be in this series called The Best sermon ever. And if you're new to the vineyard or if we've never met and you know that we'd like to actually make fun of ourselves, you, know, you have to know on the front end, it's not because we think we're the best preachers ever, right? This is because we're all summer long for 10 weeks in a row, we are going to look at the, the message of Jesus Christ found in the Sermon on the Mount, probably the most famous sermon ever preached. It's in Matthew 5, 6, and seven. This is week three of a 10-week series, and we're just going to slowly work through the Sermon on the Mount together. You know, he preached this message over 2,000 years ago, but it is still just as effective today as it was back then. We're going to look at just two small verses this morning, right where Natalie left off 
last week following the Beatitudes. Matthew chapter 5, verse 11 and 12. You can read it with me. God blesses you when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil things about you because you are my followers. Be happy about it. Be very glad for a great reward awaits you in heaven. And remember, the ancient prophets were persecuted in the same way. This passage in particular is a sobering reminder that we live in a broken world. That the world is not yet all it was designed to be. Christ has come and he has inaugurated and established his kingdom. But our hope is in his return where the scriptures teach us that he'll make all things new. He'll make all things right. That we'll experience life with no more tears or suffering or no more death. But until that day, we are still surrounded by brokenness. By pain, mourning, death, all kinds of darkness, and yes, according to Scripture, even persecution. I'm sure many of you saw the news a couple of weeks ago, but on June 5th, 50 Christians were massacred in Nigeria during worship at their church. The priest was kidnapped, still hasn't been found, but 50 Nigerians lost their lives because of their faith. And you start to step back and look at the actual news, and it kind of starts to put persecution in perspective a little bit, doesn't it? I mean, I don't, I don't know if you remember this thing that we have, have struggled with the last couple of years called the global pandemic and COVID. But during COVID, there was this kind of um, uprising of media, whether it was on TV or social media, and we began to call mask-wearing persecution. Do you remember this? Mask, or these are just emails I got, maybe. We began to call mask-wearing persecution. And listen, I, I know many of us hated masks. We hated it. I hated the masks. It affected worship. It changed things in the room. I, I get it. Most of us did not like the mask situation, but when you hear about 50 Nigerian brothers and sisters being killed because of their faith at a worship service, it kind of puts martyrdom and mask wearing at odds. Yeah. Am I right? I mean, our brothers and sisters across the globe are being persecuted in ways that we can't imagine this side of the globe. It kind of puts a global perspective on persecution, and I realize that this is like we just celebrated sports training camp, and now we're talking about some really depressing thing. But persecution happens. It is, it is real. We might be sheltered from it a bit, but as we'll discuss throughout our time together this morning, I think we'll all also realize that persecution is not just knocking at our door. It's also here in the United States. It just looks a little different. I'm not sure if you've been paying attention to the American culture at all lately, but persecution and the Christian faith and this growing oppression against the Christian worldview is well-seated in the United States of America. The amount of people expressing hatred and rejection, and we're talking about more than just like kind of a cancel culture where if you're a Christian, I'm just going to block you out of my life. I'm talking about a more violent vocalization against the Christian faith. This is skyrocketing in the United States. And I, I'm not an alarmist. I don't like to preach that way. I never think fear is a good motivator for the Christian life. 
but I do want to be a realist. And this kind of persecution is already embedded in our culture. A few months ago, Natalie and I were talking to our friends from Young Life. If you didn't know, Young Life has an amazing outreach in our area. They minister to middle school, uh, high schoolers, college students, teen moms, kids with special needs, and they office right out of our building. So they run three special events in our space uh, each week. It's a pretty a phenomenal partnership. But we were talking to our friends at Young Life, and they were trying to explain to us what has happened in their ministry in just the last five years. In just the last five years. They said, in the last five years, it's become harder and harder and harder to keep your faith and share your faith with the people around you. Five years ago, they said they were on CSU's campus in a very public setting, open air space, and they, all they were doing was they were inviting folks to Young Life who were walking through this common area of campus, most likely an event that we would now host here at the Vineyard. They said five years ago, people were either genuinely inquisitive or maybe they disagreed, but at most, they kind of disagreed with a, a dismissiveness or a silent brushing off of your faith, and they just went and continued about their day. Three years ago, they said, that this is right before COVID, they said you have the same conversation in the same kind of way, with the same kind of demeanor, and they would respond, young life? Isn't that a Christian thing? You guys are dumb. I'm not going to that, and you need to get out of my face. You need to stop inviting me because I'm not going to participate in that. A little bit more aggressive. Just in a couple years of difference. Not inquisitive at all. The courtesy is gone. They said now, though, in a post-COVID reality with cancel culture all over the place and even more people being rewarded for their anti-Christian posture and rhetoric, they said the game has completely changed. Greg Hook, who's one of their key leaders, said that after inviting a recent passerby, there was yelling, there was cursing, there was accusing, there was blaming the church and Christians for all of the pain and hatred in the world, and it ended with this person flipping him double birds right in his face and stomping off in the other direction. Five years. And this is the trajectory that they've seen and witnessed on campus. Five years, and we went from silent dismissiveness to violent, almost a rage-filled response. Now, thankfully, martyrdom right, is not happening in the United States like it is in Nigeria or North Korea or Burkina Faso, but persecution and aggression against Christianity telling you it's not just coming or sneaking in. It's already embedded in our culture. And that's why passages like from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, verses 11 and 12, are so incredibly important for us to wrestle with and talk about and pray through and reflect on together because Jesus is teaching us how we are to respond in moments like that. In moments when you get the double birds and the stomping in the opposite direction. Jesus knew this was going to happen. He knew that it was going to persist, and so he taught us how to handle it. Let's read the passage together one more time. Again, five, chapter 5, verse 11 and 12. God blesses you when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil things against you because you are my followers. Be happy about it. 
Be very glad, for a great reward awaits you in heaven. And remember, the ancient prophets were persecuted in the same way. A few quick hitters on the front end, just uh, some contextual understanding, some important things to point out before we really dig into the text. First, you have to remember that Natalie taught what's, what's known as the Beatitudes last week. And, and verse 10 plays right into verse 11 and 12, what we just read. Remember verse 10, Jesus said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of of heaven. And then the very next thing, which is our passage for today, Jesus says, God blesses you when you're persecuted because of me. It's, it's a redundant message. Jesus is repeating himself on purpose. He's doubling down. He's aware. He was a good preacher. He was a good order. He knew that a phrase like that would catch the room off guard, that all of a sudden people would be trying to catch up because they couldn't quite understand what he just said. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Jesus says, yes, you're blessed. When people hate you and mock you and lie about you and say all kinds of evil things about you because of me. In verse 10, he uses the word persecution, but now in verse 11, he, he does kind of broaden it, right? Mocking, lying, saying evil things about you. Jesus is beginning to define persecution in a much broader way, a much more wide-reaching kind of way. And he's doing this because he wants us to understand. He wants us to understand that, that persecution is on a continuum. That persecution is on a continuum. Martyrdom is the extreme side over here. And probably on the other is like the silent dismissiveness that the CSU leader was talking about how they experienced it five years ago. And everything in the middle, the mocking, the lying, the gossiping, the saying evil things about you, it's either minor or major depending on how aggressive it is, but it fits all on this continuum. The other important phrase to mention before we dig into a few application points is verse 11. Verse 11, where it says, God blesses you when you're persecuted because you're my followers. This is important to mention. This is important to, to kind of slow down on a little bit because the phrase, because you are my followers, defines every other piece in this passage. It defines the persecution. He's not saying you're blessed when you're persecuted for being an idiot, You're blessed when you're persecuted for following him, right? You, you can't just be a jerk to someone who's being a jerk to you and expect God's blessing. That's not how this works. That's not what he's saying. You can't go to work. You can't be a horrible employee at work and demand that everybody listens to you proselytize the entire office, get laid off because you're not doing your job, and then call it Christian persecution. That's called not listening to your boss and, and maybe even being a bad employee, Right? It's not the same as when Peter and Paul shared their faith in the book of Acts and got thrown into prison because they were sharing their testimony with the world around them. It's not the same thing. Jesus is saying, when you're acting like a follower of Christ, when you're loving people who are different than you, when you're upholding the values of the kingdom of God, when you're not, you know, not surrendering the Christian ethic, but you're holding it within your heart and your life, but when you're doing that in a way that honors God and you're persecuted, that's when the blessing is going to come. And it does say God will bless you 
when it happens. So if that's kind of the, the bedrock of the text, if that's the context, that's off the tales of the Beatitudes, that it's really important to understand that it happens when you're following Jesus, then all of a sudden it leads us to our first application point this morning, that you can find happiness and blessing in your persecution. Happiness and blessing. Verse 11 and verse 12, they, it says it in a few different ways. It says God blesses you when you're persecuted. It says to be happy about it, to rejoice, to be very glad that even a reward awaits you in heaven when you're persecuted for following Jesus. And this is not our normal and natural response. At least it's not mine. Right? And I realize the room is filled with all kinds of different personalities. We have a lot of different personalities viewing online as well. And, and so, of course, we wouldn't all respond in the same way when persecution happens. Some of us might actually be tempted to, to kind of sulk or, or kind of retreat when persecution happens. And if it happens enough times, we might even start to stay silent because we don't want the persecution to persist. Others might gather some friends and we would gossip our way back to confidence. We would make a little holy huddle and we say, can you believe this happened and this person said that? And they would all pat you on the back and say, it's okay, cheer up. That person's a loser anyway. It's an uncomfortable laugh because we've seen it done before. Still others, we might get on social media and make a nasty post or a nasty remark hoping that the Christian internet trolls would comfort us and make us feel better. Then there are people like me who would want to fight. And through apologetics and argumentation, I'll prove my case to be right so that you'll finally surrender your life to the Lord and begin living like me, which never works. But I'm tempted every time. But Jesus says, don't do it like that. He says, don't do it like that. He says, instead, rejoice and be glad. Even receive God's blessing. This is so counterintuitive. It's so counterintuitive to, to who we are. And in fact, I, I really feel like the Lord needs to disciple us in this and teach us how to do it. And I would say the best way that this can happen, the best way that you can rejoice in persecution, at least with any kind of honesty and depth, is to become incredibly acquainted with the sufferings of Jesus Christ yourself. The more you lift your eyes and become fascinated with the person of Jesus, the more you are well-versed in his life and his suffering and his death and what he has done in your place, the more you'll be able to rejoice and be glad when you have to, ha when you have to handle persecution yourself. If you think about the life of Jesus, I mean, he truly was the ultimate one who was persecuted for righteousness. He was the one who was re rejected and betrayed. He was the one who was lied about. They set up a false trial just to accuse him. They mocked him. They put a robe over him and a crown of thorns on his head. He had to drag his cross to the top of the hill where he was crucified with a sign over his head. This man was persecuted for his righteousness, mocked, beaten, arrested, killed for his faith. When you read about his death and his crucifixion, what happens is your mind and your heart and your life, it begins to be caught up in this beautiful story of a Savior who laid his life down for you and for me, and he begins to transform your mind and your heart and even your life in a way where you can embrace persecution in the same way he did. In the book of Acts, which is the first book after the resurrection of Jesus, kind of follows the life of the early church in the New Testament era. 
You read all kinds of stories about his followers who were beaten and stoned, thrown into prison, and even killed for their faith. And every single time you read one of those stories, you read something crazy that they did in response, like sing praise songs while they were locked up in prison. Pray for their persecutors until their last breath. Lay their life down, praying for their enemies. They learned all of that from him. They watched him do it. They retold the stories to one another. And they were fascinated by this one who said, no love is greater than this when a friend lays his life down for another. One time, Peter and the apostles, they were arrested, flogged, beaten, and then released, probably with open sores on their back, probably with blood oozing down their side. And in Acts 5, 41, it says they left rejoicing and thanking God that their lives were considered worthy to suffer in the same way that Christ suffered. They counted it as a blessing that somehow God saw their life worthy to share in the sufferings of Christ. So when you are persecuted, when you're mocked, when you're called names, when you're lied about, or even worse, you can get angry, you can get bitter, you can return their sins the way that they came to you, but there is a better way. There's a more Christ-like way that will not only strengthen your faith and mature your journey with Christ, but it will inspire those around you. And it's to know that somehow, some way, in those moments, you are sharing in the sufferings of Christ. Of course, this begs the question, when's the last time you were persecuted for your faith? Remember, Jesus defines persecution on a continuum. Yes, it includes martyrdom, and if you're in this room, that hasn't happened to you, so thank God. But that means that you're somewhere over here. Similar to what it says in verse 11, where people mock you and lie about you, say evil things against you, persecute you in, in non-life-threatening ways. Odds are most of us are going to land on this side of that equation. But when's the last time something like that has happened to you? Has it ever happened to you? Has the public display of your faith ever caused you to be ridiculed or rejected, mocked or persecuted? If not, can I kindly and humbly submit to you that in our day and age and with the cultural activity actively working against the Christian faith, with stories like I shared from CSU's campus, can I humbly present to you with, with kindness and tenderness in my heart, please know it's there, can I kindly present to you that, that maybe your faith isn't quite as recognizable as you think? Please know me. I say that with fear and trepidation before you. I say that with humility and love for you. But if that hasn't happened in your life, I, I would imagine one or two things might be true about your walk with Jesus. Either one, you've surrounded yourself with people who believe exactly what you believe and they would never persecute you for your thoughts because they believe all the same stuff. And if that's you, I just want to urge you this morning to, to, to enter into the life of some folks that don't know Jesus, because God might use you to draw them into an eternal relationship with our Lord and Savior.
And two, perhaps your faith isn't quite as recognizable as you think. I don't say that to shame you or to force you into some kind of weird conversation that you're not comfortable with. I only say it because Jesus seemed to know that persecution would follow his his believers. It was an assumed reality for Jesus. It was so important to Jesus that he included at the very beginning of his most important dialogue with his followers ever. Like on the front end, he wanted us to know that when persecution happens, that we can hold fast to our faith that we can find joy in the suffering, that somehow, some way, we can share in the sufferings of Jesus Christ. And I get that it's complicated. I know that it's complicated because I've talked with many of you personally about how complicated it can get in your life and in your workplace where your boss has said, hey, you can love Jesus all you want on the weekends, but when you're in this office from nine to five, you can't talk about him. And I know this complicated. Others have it even harder. You haven't just been asked to stay silent, but you've been asked to compromise your Christian values and ethics for the sake of the company or if you want to get promoted. I mean, these are are incredibly difficult situations, and not every relationship is the same, and not every workplace is the same. There are times where it's advantageous to earn your right to share your faith, and there are times when out of obedience you need to share your faith. And I'm not going to tell you what is what in your life. I just want to encourage you to reflect and think about that and pray about that with the Lord. I mean, I, even my own life, I know it's, it's advantageous at times to not disclose that I'm a pastor right away. And then at other times, it's, it's really important for me to say that on the front end. And it's in those moments that I need to be walking with the Lord and asking him, how can I join you in the mission of transforming all things in this very moment? See, all of these things are true. All of these things are complicated. But I I just want to be on the record for saying it would be a loss. It would be a major bummer if in the moments of your neighbor's greatest need, if in the moments when your coworker's life is falling apart or your friend is maybe facing divorce or a, a new cancer diagnosis or whatever the tragedy is, it would be a major loss if they didn't know that they could count on you and go to you for spiritual help in those moments. And by the way, this is true, I think, for all the ages in the room. All the ages in the room. And so I just want to say to all the kids, middle schoolers, high schoolers, college students who are in this room, I want to encourage you to fight for your faith. Fight for your faith. Build the discipline of staying true to Jesus, even when it costs you something. Because if you start to compromise on the small things and in the small conversations, what happens is it builds momentum and all of a sudden it's going to be a lot easier to compromise on the bigger things and the bigger conversations. So build the discipline in the small moments of keeping and fighting for your faith. I can promise you that your friends, no matter what they say, no matter what they do, your friends are in desperate need for the spiritual answers that you carry in your heart. Standing up for your faith, it may cost you something in the immediate. But it will strengthen you to stand for your faith tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day. And before you know it, someone just might start crashing into the kingdom and they're going to tap you on the shoulder for some help. For all of us, being public about our faith might feel awkward at first. You could be rejected. 
You might have to share it off the clock. You might have to earn your right to share your testimony. And even if you do it in all the right ways, you still might be rejected. But I'm telling you, it's worth it every single time. You'll either get a chance to point someone to Jesus through his life in you, or you'll get an opportunity to share in the sufferings of Christ and respond in a, in a godly way. Either way, Christ is glorified. These two verses, they really allow us to talk about all kinds of interesting things. Of course, first, you can find happiness and blessing in your persecution, and, and that begs this question that we've just kind of worked our way through. Have you ever been persecuted for your faith? And finally, if I haven't been direct enough, let me be direct one more time. Don't be a persecutor. I, I tried really hard all week long to find a really nice, easy, loving way to say that, but I couldn't find one. So I just promise to say it with a please and a smile. Please, for the glory of Jesus Christ, don't be a persecutor. Don't persecute others. And most of you, you hear that and you can't even imagine why I would bring this up in a message, why I would waste my time saying something like that in a church, especially because we're all the ones that are persecuted. We're the ones who are mocked and rejected and ridiculed for our faith. But I just want to humbly submit to you, if we walk slow enough at the story of Jesus, we can realize pretty quickly that the people who put him on a cross 2,000 years ago were the people who worshiped regularly. The people who mocked him and lied about him and ridiculed him and rejected him and denied him and crucified him were people that went to the temple all the time. And so I just want to present that to you and say, don't be a persecutor. Be careful and tread lightly when you maybe meet another Christian who just seems a bit more radical than you, who kind of rubs you the wrong way because they almost seem fanatical about their faith. Be careful about mocking them or ridiculing them. Instead, let's be a church that encourages our brothers and sisters. You know, the church is full of really interesting people. If you haven't met any of those interesting people yet, you're that interesting person. So let's encourage one another. Let's support our brothers and sisters, even the ones that we may disagree with. Let's bless other churches. Get into the habit when you're driving around Fort Collins to pray for the church that you pass. There are a lot of good churches in our town. I'm so thankful that you call the vineyard your home, but I'm telling you, I've met a lot of these pastors. They are doing everything they can to lead people to Jesus. There are good men and women leading other churches in our city. Let's bless them. Let's bless the staff here at, at the vineyard. Let's bless the staff at other churches. I promise you, their waking prayer and thought is, how can I help make disciples? I promise you. Don't, no, I said, I said I would say it with a please. Please, don't persecute others. Final thought this morning, another scripture from the end of Jesus' life. In John 15, he told us exactly what to expect. John 15, verse 18, if the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. They're not actually hating you, they're hating Christ in you. They're sharing in the suffering. If you're called to be like the world around you, the world would love you, but you're not. Jesus has called you out of the world and into the kingdom of God, and therefore the world and its systems will reject you as they rejected Jesus. But in those moments, rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward 
in heaven. Listen, as we prepare to, ta- to have our time of reflection and response, I just want to say I realize that right now in this room there are people who have lived this life of persecution and you're depleted and you're beat up and you don't know how to respond. In a moment when we have our time of reflection and response, I'm going to be praying and I want you to join me in prayer that God would refresh you for the ways that you've been dinged and beaten up, rejected, and ridiculed. Some of us, on the other hand, may actually need to confess that maybe we've persecuted others or maybe our faith is unrecognizable and Jesus wants to change that. Jesus wants to give you courage and empowerment. He wants to forgive you today so that you can leave a different person than how you came in. And still others need to rejoice. But we don't know how. We don't know how to rejoice because it hurts too much. In those moments, cling to Jesus. Cling to the cross. Behold all that he went through for you, and for me, that he laid his life down, that he went through the full gamut of rejection so that we could be united to him forever. Let's pray.